Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fully Grown Podcast, Ministry of Turner Christian Church. I am Pastor Jack. I am Pastor Rachel. And I'm Pastor Matt. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fully Grown Podcast, a Ministry of Turner Christian Church. Um, this is episode 111. We're so glad that you are with us. Um, this morning, we're going to start off by discussing thankfulness a little bit, and Rachel has kind of a conversation to lead us through. So, Rachel? Yeah, so I was reading a essay last night um, on pastoral care, um, pastors as agents of hope, and so it was this, this is beautifully written essay on um, what hope is and uh, how we step into hope um, as part of God's creation, and there was this one passage that really resonated with me, uh, particularly in a hard season where um, at times hope can seem hard to come by and, and thankfulness um, uh, can be quite a process. <laughs> Sometimes it seems hard to be thankful. The author was talking about um, how uh, contentment and thankfulness is taking a moment to appreciate the hopes that have been realized, that there's things in our life right now that are the byproduct of hopes that we've had in the past um, that God has realized for us. And, and so uh, hope is always like a, like a future word. We're still hoping for things to come, things in our future. Obviously, our greatest hope is Jesus. But in the moment, we can take time to appreciate the hopes that have been realized. So the image that I've had is like, you know, God and I are climbing a mountain and I get to the top of the mountain and I see another peak, right? My future hopes off in the distance. Um, but I take a moment to appreciate the view of this mountain. And so that's been a really helpful image for me today as I've been thinking, okay, what am I thankful for? What, what have I been praying for in the past that God has answered or what characteristics have I longed for in my life that God has started to give, in, to give me um, out of his graciousness? And that's really helpful in cultivating an attitude of thankfulness, I think. You know, I think we, we move on to the next thing so fast in, um, in this culture, I'd say. And it's, it's with all sorts of different items. You know, I think of, you know, cell phones. We'd like to move to the next thing, next thing, next thing. Um, particularly with, with iPhone users, I'd say that's kind of a common thing. It's moving to the next iPhone and there's usually like two that are released every year. So people are getting- Are you calling from, yourself out? I'm not calling myself out because I'm not <laughs> person, but there are people within our our kind of realm that do that thing. Um, but I also think of, of the Israelites and how you know they would move to the next thing so fast. They'd get upset and um, they would not feel contentment and they'd, they'd say, well, we need this. And then God would provide it for them. And then they wouldn't be really thankful. And they'd move on really quickly and say, we want the next thing. We need this. And then God would provide it for them. Um, and so, I, I mean, that I guess I wouldn't say this culture. I'd say that's kind of more a human condition there. <laughs> that's something that humans are always looking for the next thing. And um, mm. it's important to, to look back and not just say, you know, what am I thankful for, but to say, what are the things that I hoped for? What are the things that I prayed for? And how did those come to fruition? How did God provide those things? Because um, that, that can just really encourage us and, and just propel us into ministry, into life, into family relationships um, that are hard or, you know, are good, but, um, you know, we need energy for or whatever that kind of looks like. So 
that's I'd say that's kind of my reflection on that topic that you brought up there, Rachel. Yeah, I really like I really like that perspective and something that um, Rachel you mentioned when we were getting ready for the podcast was how Christians will often say, well, if you're mourning something, then count your blessings and that'll make you feel better or that will correct mm -hmm. your perspective and. And I think sometimes we struggle with that perspective of gratitude because it feels emotionally forced. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's fair because we often treat gratitude and for lack of a better word, I guess, mourning as like a scale or a zero sum game where if you're mourning, you're not thankful. And if you're thankful, you're not mourning. So if you're ever um, upset or mourning something, it's because you're not being grateful enough. And if you would just focus on the privileges you do have or the things God has done, you would feel better. And um, I don't think that that's true. I think that you find a lot in scripture mixes of mourning and gratitude and being able to be in that place where you can look back behind you at how high God has taken you and also look up at how much farther you hope he will take you and be able to be grateful for what God's done and also mourn what you've lost in your life or what, you know, and not say, well, I can't mourn that because I'm supposed to be grateful. It's kind of like saying, well, I lost my arm, but I still have three good limbs. So I shouldn't feel bad about losing my arm. Like, no, you can feel bad about losing your arm. You can mourn the arm and still be grateful that you have the other three. Um, so I think sometimes we like guilt ourselves into not mourning by just saying you should be thankful instead. And yeah, I just like the idea that we can do both. I think the Psalms are, are such a great example of that because you'll see someone like really express deep levels of despair and anger. And then often in the last, you know, verse or two, it's like, but God is good. And, but this is true, but I trust the Lord, but I'm grateful to the Lord. And you see, like, they're holding them both together. Mm -hmm. I think it'd be, oh, sorry, go ahead, Jack. Oh, I was, I was just going to kind of um, reflect a little bit on the, the image that was given of climbing that mountain. You know, when you get to the, the first, I forget if you said peak, I feel like the peak is the very top, right? But when you get to that first yeah. little, little peak there, and then you enjoy the view, one thing that, you know, at least I feel like if I was the one hiking this mountain, I would, I might do is I'd be there, I'd enjoy the view, and then I'd go back down the mountain. And I think within this uh, analogy, it's important to remember, we need to get to that peak, but then also keep going and, and still hope for those things in the future, not just get to there and say, well, how is my hope realized? And then just be like, okay, and then I'm good. And then just, just completely stop or I, I don't know if that really makes sense, but I was just mm -hmm. thinking about that whole analogy. And if I were hiking a mountain, how I'd get to the first one and say, hey, that's a pretty view. That's enough for me. And then go back down the mountain. Um, so, um, yeah. Well, oh, sorry, Matt, go ahead. I was just going to say, that's how the next sermon is going to start, because that's what they do at the beginning of Judges. They reach a certain point in what God's telling them to do, and they say, yeah, that's close enough. We're done. <laughs> and it causes all kinds of problems. Um. Jack has heard my my mountain climbing, mountain hiking story, um, and I will not take us all on the very long journey that is that story, but um, I, mean, I will greatly abbreviate it to the end. Uh, a 
hiking friend of mine and I went on a very intense hike that I had not trained for and was not prepared for. And it took every single fiber of my emotional, mental, and spiritual energy to get up that mountain. And um, it's uh, like, there's like a, like Alpine Lake <laughs> of uh, just rainwater in, it's called Broken Top Mountain, in the broken top of the mountain. And it's one of the most beautiful things that I've ever seen in my life. So it's like, get up and you get in and then there's this gorgeous still lake that's highly toxic don't touch it um and there's snow all around it I was up there in August it was insanely beautiful and then there's like 200 feet more of straight up climbing and here I am at one of the most beautiful sites in my life but there's 200 more feet and it was so tempting to just stop there <laughs> and I was so exhausted but then I go by an act of God, I get up the last 200 feet and Three Sisters Wilderness is just spread out below me. And, and it was even more gorgeous than the view that I just had in, in my mind. Not that you necessarily should rank views, but, um, and it felt like I was sitting on the edge of the world with one of my good friends and we watched the sunset over the wilderness. And if I hadn't gone that last 200 feet, if I'd said, oh, this is good enough. I would have missed out on one of the best moments of my life watching the sunset. It's yeah, a place. Mm. Mm. That's cool. Alrighty, for this episode of the Fully Grown Podcast, we are discussing some of the happenings in the book of Joshua. And um, Rachel and I have a, a few questions for Pastor Matt. And Rachel, Pastor Rachel is going to lead us off with um, her question. Yeah, so in Joshua, the Israelites get circumcised. Um, they previously had been engaging in that ritual, and then uh, this generation of men had not had that done. And so they all get circumcised together, one mass circumcision event. Um, and I just always remember, like, not encountering that word as a child. <laughs> and so when it was introduced to me in... Um, in Bible studies as an adult, I was like, what are you guys talking about? Because they did not teach me that in Sunday school. They didn't talk about circumcision. They avoided those passages in the Old and New Testament. And, um, and I think it's such an important concept to understand um, why the Israelites do it and what it means. And then, of course, the question that's always on my mind is, you know, why did God just give a sign to the men, a physical sign to the men? So my question is just circumcision. What? Yeah, so um, excellent question. In terms of what circumcision is, it's removing um, a piece of uh, the foreskin. Um, and it's, it's actually very different. I, I learned this as uh, I had, um, you learn all kinds of things when you have children. It's a very different practice from what we practice today uh, in terms of the actual, like, what's removed. Um, but it was meant circumcision... The interesting thing about circumcision, it's kind of like the Nazarite vow. Um, it's introduced as something that's already known about. It's not something that the Bible claims God invented. It's mm -hmm. something that he told Abraham to use in a particular way. In fact, what we know is that it was already being practiced in other cultures. Specifically, it was mostly practiced in uh, Egypt. And so that's likely how Abraham was already aware of it because God tells him to get circumcised and to circumcise the men in his family. And if he hadn't heard of circumcision, you'd think there would be a lot of clarifying questions. 
but Abraham already knows what he's talking about. And so we can get a sense for what circumcision means. I mean, you can actually put it together from what you read in the text, but we also know what it meant to the Egyptians and to other cultures, which is that circumcision was a way of marking your membership in a particular group. Most other cultures practiced it as a um, rite of passage into manhood. So it would happen uh, around puberty. And so if you were, or it would happen when you, if a man married into a clan, uh, normally uh, the wife would marry into the husband's clan, but every once in a while, a man would join his wife's family. And that would often, circumcision would often be involved there as well. But the idea was that it marked them as part of this particular group of people. And I think that's helpful for us in answering, uh, Rachel, your question about why did God choose a symbol that is only on men? The fact that it's an already existing um, symbol to me tells me that I don't think God invented out of the blue he, he said hey i'm going to completely invent from scratch this thing to mark off my people and i'm going to choose a symbol that only is done to men uh, what we seem to see happening is that human beings created a symbol to communicate a certain message and so when god wanted to communicate that message about his people he used their existing social language and it was human beings who chose a symbol that that was specific to men because in their culture you figured out a woman's clan by her association with a man. So a woman belonged to her husband's clan or her father's clan. And then it was the, the man who would carry that symbol. So I think we would say that's, that's most likely a decision that human beings made in a very patriarchal society. And God used the language of the time to communicate that these people are, um, the, these people are set aside. Um, I also think it's important for us to recognize that this was a very different type of culture in terms, we have a sense of, of individualism. We often will think of circumcision as like baptism, where being circumcised means you individually are a member, become a member of a group. And we might also think that circumcision is meant to be a sign that you're saved, which is also why it would be problematic that only half of the population is eligible to get that sign. Uh, but first of all, it was not an individual thing. It was, uh, the idea wasn't if you are an individual who gets circumcised, you're part of the people of God. It was more that the community that gets its men circumcised is the community of God. And so that's like when Abraham gets circumcised, and when God tells Abraham to get circumcised, he has to get all the men in his community circumcised. And so it was a community thing rather than an individualistic thing. And it also, it wasn't a sign of individual salvation. It was a sign that you were part of a group that was expected to meet certain, uh, to, expected to keep a covenant. And so there's no sense that being circumcised like means you're getting into heaven. It was being, um, having the circumcision means you are part of a group that is expected to keep the covenant. It doesn't tell you whether you're keeping it or not. Um, and so ultimately, yeah, what circumcision is meant to communicate is that you are set aside as a part of a particular clan. And so I think that's why Paul talks about it so much when he comes around at the end uh, in the new, in, end of the Bible in the New Testament and says circumcision is not important anymore because God is uniting humanity. So these symbols that separate people are no longer important. 
God wants to unify people. And so we don't want to say you have to be part of this particular clan in order to be God's people. We're saying you need to be in Jesus in order to be part of God's people. And you can do that regardless of what clan you're part of. You know, within within that conversation of kind of the, the New Testament and how Paul kind of takes it, I, I do feel there's this kind of idea of, you know, there's the physical symbol in the Old Testament and therefore the expectation that comes with that to um, uphold your end of the promise and your end of the covenant with God. And when it moves to the New Testament and Paul then saying, you know, circumcision isn't important, um, not that actions weren't important um, in the Old Testament, but it almost becomes, you know, your changed life is kind of the, the symbol, is the sign of your um, kind of who you belong to, in a sense. You know, I mean, my class on Sunday morning has been going through Galatians and James, and there's kind of within both those letters, kind of these ideas of you live a changed life, and that's going to be shown through how you treat people, how you act, um, and that should be the I, I hesitate to use the word proof, um, but that should be that should kind of show people who you are and who you belong to. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, Moses already in Deuteronomy will tell the people one day God is going to circumcise your hearts. Mm. And that what that means is that the mark that will set God's people apart will be in their heart, not meaning that if for, for Hebrews heart was the site of your thoughts as well as your you know, it, it was it was more like your mind, but the idea is that your decisions and your behaviors and and the kind of person that you are would be what sets you aside as God's people, as opposed to what you've done to your body. Yeah. Does that answer kind of what you would? Yeah. Thank you so questions? much, Matt. I feel like that was that was really good. Hit all the points, and I'd never satisfactorily heard an answer to why. It was men only. All the explanations that I'd heard seemed um, very dodging the question. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, you know, it, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I had a conversation with uh, one of our elders recently, and we, there have been conversations about like the pagan aspects of Christian holidays. And we talked about the fact that if you want to have something that's completely no influence from human culture, it um, even even the practices in the Bible don't satisfy that. Even they use, because God routinely uses the language of and the symbolism of humanity at the time in order to communicate his purposes. And so circumcision was something people are already doing. Sacrifices are something people are already doing. Nazarite vows are something people are already doing. And God uses that language to communicate his purposes. Um, but he's he's redeeming something that we've created and so um we can still identify like it was it was a human being's choice to make this a symbol and god's used it to say something else well you just used a, a word that i i love so much which is redeemed and i love to see all the examples through the bible and in our modern culture of how god takes these very human things and redeems them for his purposes and the example that i always go to which i'm sure the two of you've heard me use before is you know how many of um, uh, hymns written in America were originally based to the tune of drinking songs? Because that's yes. <laughs> that's the tune that people knew. But let's let's put Christ in them. Let's take these songs that <laughs> had other purposes and let's make them for Jesus. 
Yeah. And another example of that is baptism. Baptism is something that was already being done in the culture. And there are some roots in the Old Testament, but baptism isn't really practiced in the Old Testament. But I do think it's meaningful that when Jesus, you know, when, when God in the New Testament chooses a symbol, he chooses something that is done to any, it can be done to anyone and everyone. And so that new symbol of membership in God's people is universal. All righty. Well, I'd say that was a good conversation. Um, so my first question here has to do with um, Joshua and the Israelites um, overtaking Jericho. They defeat Jericho, right? So it's, it's, it's done. It's, it's happened. But then Joshua also seems to curse Jericho. And so my question is, why did Joshua curse Jericho after defeating it? And did this curse ever end up kind of coming into effect, ever, ever come up, ever end up happening, I guess you could say? Yes. So uh, that is an excellent question because it fits really well with what we were talking about in the sermon about Hiram. So Hiram is devoting something to God. And Hiram was not only something that only the Israelites did. We found other cultures doing the same thing. And most commonly what they would do is they would level a city and they would dedicate it to their gods. And what that meant was nobody is allowed to build here ever again because it's this God's property. And so if anybody else builds on the land, then they are using that property for their own benefit and they're actually stealing it from the gods. Because, you know, when you're when you're dedicating things to a god who's not actually going to physically live there, um, there's a. I, I think the problem is that you can do a lot of half-hearted gifts and say, "Sure, I've dedicated this to God. I mean, I'm farming on it a little on the side, and I'm making money off of that. But no, I, I've dedicated it to God. He won't mind. You know, it's a absentee landlord kind of thing. Um, so if you want to make sure that you've really dedicated it to a god, then you say no one gets to use it. That's why they would kill the livestock is because that way no one gets to make money off of the livestock because it's God's. Um, and so when, Jer when Joshua puts a curse over the city, he probably did that multiple, in multiple cities. Mm -hmm. That's the idea that we, we didn't win this battle. God won this battle. And so the city belongs to him and we're going to let him keep it. He's keeping it for himself, which means nobody gets to live here. Now, the, the curse that he actually pronounces is interesting. Um, I should have already had this open. I guess podcasters can't see me. I'm leafing through my Bible finding this passage. Um, oh, and I'm all right. So he says, uh, this is Joshua 6 26. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up his gates. And so there's something ambiguous about that. Um, he's saying basically the guy who, who builds this is going to lose his firstborn son. Well, you can't really tell is does that mean like some kind of tragedy is going to befall his youngest son or his his firstborn son or does that mean he's going to have to sacrifice his firstborn son um, in order to lift the curse it's kind of ambiguous and then what happens is obviously we know well not obviously but there are stories about jesus traveling through jericho so we know that jericho gets rebuilt 
And there is a specific story in First Kings um, where that happens. It's First Kings 16. So in First Kings 16, 34, it says, in Ahab's time, Kiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Now, even there, it's still ambiguous as to what exactly that means. Um, we'll talk about this briefly in the sermon, that I, I think we can tell that it is the curse is not God saying, I want someone to sacrifice their child, uh, because he says that's the worst thing that the Canaanites do. And I don't want you doing any of those things, certainly not sac like sacrificing children. So we know that God does not want sacrificing of children. Um, so I think... I think it more indicates that there was some kind of, I don't I'm not sure exactly what that means, um, but certainly that the, the curse was real and, or that the, the, the curse, not the curse was real, but the, um, what Joshua was saying was serious. He wanted the Israelites to take it seriously. And it is no small thing to take something back from God that has been dedicated to him. I think that's that's the definite takeaway is that it's it dedic that dedication was serious and real. Yeah. Got I got a second question now. And I was kind of hoping just that we could have a, a conversation about this as the three of us here. Um, but within within the book of Joshua, right, there is a command laid of there's several commands laid upon Joshua and the and the Israelite people. And so I was wondering, what do we do as believers today in our time? What do we do with commands and promises that are spoken directly to someone in the Bible? So, um, so in Joshua 1, we've been talking about this earlier, that in Joshua 1, God tells Joshua to be strong and courageous, and people will use that a lot to encourage each other, the Christians to be strong and courageous. And so we will take that, we'll often talk about that as an instruction to us um, and ignore all the other instructions that are equally a part of what God is saying. Because, and so nobody, you know, we think we're supposed to be bold and courageous, but we don't think that we're supposed to keep, meticulously keep the book of Deuteronomy, which is also said in that passage. So how do we navigate the fact that we're reading stories um spoken to characters in a totally different arrangement or a totally different stage of the of god's plan and one of the things i like about this question is it, it returns to the theme that we've really been hitting a lot in this podcast about reading the bible as a story i think one of the problems that we run into as christians is we read the bible as if it says dear for my case dear matthew in the beginning, God created, and it's just all addressed to me. And there's a subtle but important difference. I think what, how we should read it is, dear Matthew, here's what you missed in the beginning. And it's telling the story. It's not speaking to me. It's catching me up on the story of what God has been doing in the world and the story that I'm invited to be a part of. Because what that means is that I'm reading Joshua not as some, God's not speaking to me there. He's speaking to Joshua, but it's the same God who does speak to me. And so I can learn about who God is and learn about the way God speaks to his people and the kinds of things he asks of, asks of his people without just saying, well, he told me to do this specifically in this verse. 
because we can get into a lot of trouble with that when we just say God said to do this to the told this other person to do this therefore he's telling me to do this for instance that's one of the ways that people have really badly uh, and and uh, very very badly used the story of the conquest of Canaan is to say well God told the Israelites to conquer land and push people out so therefore um, when we do it it's fine too or we because we're Christians have this gives us permission to take things from people and, and to conquer and that kind of stuff. And the fact that God said it to a certain group of his people at a certain time does not mean he said it to me. Um, but what we try to do at the end of each of these sermons, what I'm trying to do is to then say, if we, if this is, if we know that we're dealing with the same God, then what does this tell us about the way that God operates? And so and that way, you can get to a point where God does often call us to be bold and courageous when, when he gives us a mission, we, but he doesn't call us all to meticulously follow the book of Deuteronomy. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. You know, and I was kind of thinking about it in, in this context, and I find it interesting that sometimes, you know, we, we, we tend to, to hold on to things so tightly. You know, we, we read it in scripture and we say, okay, that's just how it is. That's how it's supposed to be. When in reality, um, you know, reading scripture as as a story, we can understand things and say, um, this is how I see God operating. This is a command that he gives in, in this way to the Israelites. Jesus seems to give a command that's similar, but not the same in the New Testament. Um, you know, just thinking about some of the different commands that God gives the Israelites in the Old Testament, and then Jesus saying, you know, love God and love others. And um, but in reality, th these are still stories and Jesus is still in a different time and a different context and communicating those things. And I do think that we should listen to what he's saying and should do those things. But there's a lot of times specifically with like Paul or, you know, those different letters, um, those are written to specific people in a specific context. And so a lot of what we, um, understand from those sections of scripture, I think kind of can be understood sometimes as, you know, um, educated kind of assumptions, which isn't bad. I'm not saying that in a bad way, but kind of like, you know, we, we, if we read it as, I forget the specific term that you use, Matt, but kind of as like, a, um, as a, a textbook or some, some way to a reference book. Yeah then we look at Paul and what he said and say, that is the theology on this, or that is how we're supposed to do this, or that's how we're supposed to handle the situation. When in reality, Paul was speaking to a specific people at a specific time, and other people are going to come to other conclusions uh, about what Paul is, is saying there, because they might have some sort of different educated kind of assumption that they come to with that theology. Um, I'm trying to be careful about what I'm saying here, but... Um, all I am saying is there are some things that I think we read scripture as a reference book and we say, this is how this is. And if someone else thinks differently, it is wrong. When I don't think we should be approaching scripture in that, in that way. Um, you know, I mean, Paul was, was big on unity, right? That was something he wanted to see happen within the churches. And there are some things that we read sometimes within scripture and say, this is a reference book and this is just how this theology is. And it's like, ah, not quite, you know, maybe, maybe it, they've come to a different conclusion because they've studied some different things. I don't know if I'm making any sense here. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I think I think the what I wouldn't want people to think is that we're saying that they can't get truth from scripture. Mm -hmm. But I think the main difference between the Bible, the Bible as it is, and a reference book is that in a reference book, everything is an equal truth claim. Mm -hmm. um, everything is equally clear. And in scripture, what we find is some things are very important and very clear and emphasized a lot. And other things are mentioned once or twice or taken only in particular context. And when we treat it like a dictionary, then we think, oh, well, this is the answer for that question, period. And what we're actually doing is we're really emphasizing one passage where someone else will really emphasize a different passage. Mm -hmm. um, and we get into a lot of trouble when we do that. But the things that need to be clear in scripture are, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, the essential parts of the faith are very, very clear. And, and, so, and so, yeah, I think that's an important guidepost for us is that we be clear on the things the Bible is clear about. Yeah. I love what you're saying, Matt, um, because I think it, it's so incredibly important that when we come to um, a text, we understand the context of it. Um, at the same time, that um, actually goes hand in hand with a, uh, a discerning and intimate reading of the text. Um, because you can sit down with Joshua 1 and have a situation in your life that's burning your heart. And you can read this um, understanding who Joshua is and, and what's happening in the story. Um, and God might prompt you in your intimate reading uh, to go be strong and courageous in your particular situation and to <laughs> maybe not to um, immerse yourself in, in the laws, but to immerse yourself in, in Jesus and the words of Jesus in the New Testament as you go and be strong and courageous in whatever it is your situation is. Um, there's so many wonderful traditions of reading scripture intimately, and uh, when we place it in context, we're, um, we're not going to go off the rails. We're just going to understand God intimately as we also understand the story of God's people throughout time. So one of the ways that I really like to do that is um, there's a style of re reflective reading called Lectio Divina, and I love to do it in groups because as people discern together the intimate message that God has for them, they're sharing it with one another. And um, I recall a time when I was particularly gung-ho about a certain dream. And so I'm reading this story and I'm like, ah, God's telling me to go for this dream that I have. And I shared it with the group and they go, eh. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe not, maybe not that, you know, the text might not actually be telling you that, Rachel. And, and so then we can edify and encourage one another in, in the right direction. Also, there's other techniques that involve using your imagination. And, you know, as you read the stories of the Gospels, imagining yourself in the situation, imagining yourself, listening to the words of Jesus and, and noticing, you know, where in the story do you place yourself? Are you placing yourself as a Pharisee? What, <laughs> what's going on there? What's in your heart that you and Jesus need to work out? Um, and, and there's such richness in that because we do have an intimate God who wants to share himself with us so personally um, but we pair that with a very important understanding of um, the culture and context of the books that we're reading and so that we don't get off track and we don't create you know one verse theologies um, and so it, it's a it's a partnership of um, head and heart and spirit 
Yeah, I appreciate you pointing that out because uh, I wouldn't want people to think that I was trying to say that God doesn't speak to us individually through scripture. I think he absolutely speaks to us individually through scripture. But what you're describing is not the, where we get into danger is we just say, oh, well, here's this verse and it's talking to me and this is what it means. I read it in a book and so I'm supposed to do it. Um, the process of God speaking to us through scripture requires engagement. It requires prayer and reflection. And to a certain extent, we have to be able to take responsibility and say, God said this to me through this text, not, well, I read it in a book, so I guess I'm supposed to do it, but there's actually an active relationship with God that is, and, and with other Christians that is generating this understanding of God through the text. So that you can absolutely be told you need to be bold and courageous through this text, but it's not simply, well, God said it to Joshua, so he's saying it to me. Um, there's that active, active relationship that is that it's a part of. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fully Grown Podcast, a ministry of Turner Christian Church. Um, this is episode 111, and we're so glad that you are with us. Um, this morning, we're going to start off by discussing thankfulness a little bit, and Rachel has kind of a conversation to lead us through. So Rachel? Yeah, so I was reading a essay last night um, on pastoral care, um, pastors as agents of hope. And so it was this, this is beautifully written essay on um, what hope is and uh, how we step into hope um, as part of God's creation. And there was this one passage that really resonated with me, uh, particularly in a hard season where um, at times hope can seem hard to come by and, and thankfulness um, uh, can be quite a process. <laughs> Sometimes it seems hard to be thankful. The author was talking about um, how uh, contentment and thankfulness is taking a moment to appreciate the hopes that have been realized, that there's things in our life right now that are the byproduct of hopes that we've had in the past um, that God has realized for us. And, and so uh, hope is always like a, like a future word. We're still hoping for things to come, things in our future. Obviously, our greatest hope is Jesus. But in the moment, we can take time to appreciate the hopes that have been realized. So the image that I've had is like, you know, God and I are climbing a mountain, and I get to the top of the mountain, and I see another peak, right? My future hopes off in the distance. Um, but I take a moment to appreciate the view of this mountain. And so that's been a really helpful image for me today as I've been thinking, okay, what am I thankful for? What, what have I been praying for in the past that God has answered? Or what characteristics have I longed for in my life that God has started to give, in, to give me um, out of his graciousness? And that's really helpful in cultivating an attitude of thankfulness, I think. You know, I think... We, we move on to the next thing so fast in, um, in this culture, I'd say. And it's, it's with all sorts of different items. You know, I think of, you know, cell phones. We'd like to move to the next thing, next thing, next thing. Um, particularly with, with iPhone users, I'd say that's kind of a common thing. It's moving to the next iPhone. And there's usually like two that are released every year. So people are getting Are you calling from... yourself out? I'm not calling myself out because I'm not that person, but... There are people within our our kind of realm that do that thing, um, but I also think of of the Israelites and how 
you know, they would move to the next thing so fast. They'd get upset and um, they would not feel contentment. And they'd, they'd say, well, we need this. And then God would provide it for them. And then they wouldn't be really thankful. And they'd move on really quickly and say, we want the next thing. We need this. And then God would provide it for them. Um, and so I, I mean, that, I guess I wouldn't say this culture, I'd say that's kind of more a human condition there. <laughs> that's something that humans are always looking for the next thing. And um, it's important to, to look back and not just say, you know, what am I thankful for, but to say, what are the things that I hoped for? What are the things that I prayed for? And how did those come to fruition? How did God provide those things? Because um, that, that can just really encourage us and, and just propel us into ministry, into life, into family relationships um, that are hard or, you know, are good, but, um, you know, we need energy for or whatever that kind of looks like. So that's, I'd say that's kind of my reflection on that topic that you brought up there, Rachel. Yeah, I really like, I really like that perspective and something that um, Rachel, you mentioned when we were getting ready for the podcast is how Christians will often say, well, if you're mourning something, then count your blessings and that'll make you feel better. or That will correct your perspective. And, and I think sometimes we struggle with that perspective of gratitude because it feels emotionally forced. And I, I think that's fair because we often treat gratitude and for lack of a better word, I guess, mourning as like a scale or a zero sum game where if you're mourning, you're not thankful. And if you're thankful, you're not mourning. So if you're ever um, upset or mourning something, it's because you're not being grateful enough. And if you would just focus on the privileges you do have or the things God has done, you would feel better. And um, I don't think that that's true. I think that you find a lot in scripture mixes of mourning and gratitude. And being able to be in that place where you can look back behind you at how high God has taken you and also look up at how much farther you hope he will take you and be able to be grateful for what God's done and also mourn what you've lost in your life or what, you know, and not say, well, I can't mourn that because I'm supposed to be grateful. It's kind of like saying, well, I lost my arm, but I still have three good limbs, so I shouldn't feel bad about losing my arm. Like, no, you can feel bad about losing your arm. You can mourn the arm and still be grateful that you have the other three. Um, so I think sometimes we like guilt ourselves into not mourning by just saying you should be thankful instead. And yeah, I just like the idea that we can do both. I think the Psalms are, are such a great example of that because you'll see someone like really express deep levels of despair and anger and then often in the last you know verse or two it's like but god is good and but this is true but i trust the lord but i'm grateful to the lord and you see like they're holding them both together mm -hmm. i think it'd be oh sorry go ahead jack oh i was i was just going to kind of um reflect a little bit on the the image that was given of climbing that mountain you know when you get to the the first I forget if you said peak. I feel like the peak is a very top, right? But when you get to that first little little peak there and then you enjoy the view, one thing that, you know, at least I feel like if I was the one hiking this mountain, I would I might do is I'd be there, I'd enjoy the view, and then I'd go back down the mountain. And I think within this uh, analogy, it's important to remember 
we need to get to that peak, but then also keep going and, and mm. still hope for those things in the future, not just get to there and say, well, how is my hope realized? And then just be like, okay, and then I'm good. And then just, just completely stop. Or I, I don't know if that really makes sense, but I was just mm. thinking about that whole analogy. And if I were hiking a mountain, how I'd get to the first one and say, hell, that's a pretty view. That's enough for me. And then go back down the mountain. Um, so yeah we'll oh sorry matt go ahead i was just gonna say that's how the next sermon is going to start because that's what they do at the beginning of judges they reach a certain point in what god's telling them to do and they say yeah that's close enough we're done <laughs> and it causes all kinds of problems um jack has heard my my mountain climbing mountain hiking story um and i will not take us all on the very long journey that is that story but um i mean, i will greatly abbreviate it to the end uh a, hiking friend of mine and I went on a very intense hike that I had not trained for and was not prepared for. And it took every single fiber of my emotional, mental and spiritual energy to get up that mountain. And um, it's uh, like, there's like a, like Alpine Lake <laughs> of uh, just rainwater in, it's called Broken Top Mountain, in the broken top of the mountain. And it's one of the most beautiful things that I've ever seen in my life. Like get up and you get in and then there's this gorgeous still lake that's highly toxic don't touch it um and there's snow all around it I was up there in August it was insanely beautiful and then there's like 200 feet more of straight up climbing and here I am at one of the most beautiful sites in my life but there's 200 more feet and it was so tempting to just stop there <laughs> and I was so exhausted but then I go by an act of God, I get up the last 200 feet and Three Sisters Wilderness is just spread out below me. And, and it was even more gorgeous than the view that I just had in, in my mind. Not that you necessarily should rank views, but, um, and it felt like I was sitting on the edge of the world with one of my good friends and we watched the sunset over the wilderness. And if I hadn't gone that last 200 feet, if I'd said, oh, this is good enough. I would have missed out on one of the best moments of my life watching the sunset. It's yeah. a beautiful place. Mm. Mm. That's cool.